Baseball Tonight, the podcast. This is the Baseball Tonight podcast for Tuesday, November 2nd, 2021. And today will be better than yesterday. Producing from his home studio in the foothills of Connecticut is the Rev. Taylor Schwenk, I'm Buster Only, working from the hotel lobby down in Houston later tonight. Taylor, we've got Game 6 of the World Series. Very fired up about that. In today's podcast, we'll be talking with Dan Schulman and Sarah Langs. Uh, about all that and we've got a documentary coming up on Barry Bonds and so for that I reached out to Anthony Gwynn who's the son of uh, the late great Hall of Famer Tony Gwynn to get some memories of Barry Bonds because Anthony's known Barry Bonds since he was a kid. Yeah it was a great conversation I love having Anthony on he's he's the coolest guy and he just he's, he knows all the little the little secrets out there because he's been so close to the game for so long. So you guys had a fantastic conversation. I will note people are going to be like, why is Buster on the phone? Buster was in transit yesterday, so we had to get both guys on the phone. But, uh, you know, the 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 quality of the content is uh, is great nonetheless. Yeah, it, it was a fun conversation. All right. News notes for today. Acting general manager Zach Scott will not return to the Mets after being placed on administrative leave following an arrest on drunken driving charges in August. Uh, the Mets have fired him. I got to say, it doesn't make any sense to me, Taylor. You know, the Mets right now are in the process of trying to head uh, hire someone to be head of baseball operations. Uh, all these other teams have front offices in place. They're getting ready to make moves. They're getting ready for free agency to, to reshape their t- uh, teams for 2022. The Mets need front office talent right now. Uh, and look, I would totally get it if they're like, we're never going to have this person be the public face of our franchise again. We're going to put him in a back cubicle, do that and use his information. And then if the next head of baseball operations comes in and says, look, I, I want Zach Scott out. Fine. Then make the choice then. But I, I don't understand why if you have access to someone who you just hired less than a year ago because you value his analytic skills, just use those. Just, am I making sense? Yeah, you keep using the analogy that the Mets are standing on the street corner watching the cars whiz by and they're getting the puddle splashed in their face. It's like they've they've turned and gone back into their apartment building and just kind of like are sulking about the fact that they can't grab a cab while everyone else is. Uh, and in terms of like the DUI thing, I guess that that's what they terminated him for, I, I, I guess. But, uh, you know, DUIs are bad. They are a bad thing. But people don't get fired all the time for them. I mean, I, I feel like we, we, a lot of people probably know people in their lives that have gotten DUIs. You don't walk in the door at work. I mean, most of the time and get fired the next day. Like, so, so I don't know. It's kind of a weird situation, but again, they're, well, they're and he's backwards. got consequences. Yeah. And, yeah. and he absolutely is responsible for his actions. Of course. He's facing course. consequences. He he's facing a trial in December mm-hmm. and whatever comes out of that, let's face it. It probably means because of how this played out, that he's never going to be a general manager again in baseball. Um, And, you know, so he certainly is going to have consequences. But and I had, uh, you know, Mets fans on on, uh, Twitter when I posted some of this today, um, you know, saying, well, of course, he got fired because the DUI. My answer to that would be, well, is the Mets standard that if you get a DUI, then you're fired? Okay, Mm -hmm. if that's the organizational standard. But then you ask the question, let's say a really talented reliever got nailed for a DUI tonight. Does anybody think they would just simply release that player? There's no way. And if you don't actually have an organizational standard, then why not just put, as I say, put Zach Scott in a back room, uh, gather information through him, use information through him, don't put him on a public stage anymore. And, 
you know, move forward in that regard. I, just letting him go at a time when you actually need people like him, I don't get it. So, you know, we'll see, uh, we'll see where the Mets go with their head of uh, the hiring of baseball operations. We saw the San Diego Padres make some uh, confusing decisions in, in uh, you know, in the last couple of months. And in the end, they wound up with Bob Melvin as manager. And maybe the Mets, in the end, will wind up with a perfect person for head of baseball operations. Uh, the Arizona Diamondbacks have hired Jeff Bannister as their bench coach. Bob Melvin was introduced as manager of the Padres formally on Monday, and San Diego held a press conference. After talking to everybody and, and seeing you know, what the stories here, and that's before you even talk about the, the players that they have here and the ballpark they have here. I remember when we came here with the, when I was with the A's last season, we came here on a Tuesday night. There were 40,000 people here, and it was electric. You would have thought it was the playoffs, and it resonated with everybody in our, in our dugout. We're all looking around at each other going, wow. And that's before, like I said, the ballpark is fantastic. I mean, it is a true destination. Every team that comes here looks at the schedule. They say, when do we go to San Diego? And now with the, the fan base and the enthusiasm here and the roster, I mean, the roster is the real hook. I mean, these, these some of the great players in the game that I know are hungry to bring a championship to San Diego. So listening to this for a couple days was, you know, it was, it was really an easy decision to make, and I'd been in a place for, for 10 plus years. So, you know, it kind of all came together quickly. First pitch is part of ESPN Nation, brought to you by Dr. Pepper. College football is back, and so are the fans. Return to glory with Fansville by Dr. Pepper, the one fans deserve. The Astros will start Luis Garcia on short rest in game six of the World Series. He's pitched three days ago, but he didn't throw a ton of pitches Dusty Baker said it's Garcia's turn to throw, and then he can always rely on a rested bullpen if things go poorly for the 24-year-old. Dusty also talked about needing to put the Astros in position to get to a game seven. They know that we still have work to do. And, you know, like when we, I mean, you want to go up there, you want to win three and win there. And then, you know, when it didn't happen in game one and then in game two, you're behind the eight ball, then you change your rally cry to, we just want to get back to the H town. You know, we want to go back home. And then now our whole thing is win game game one, which is game six, and then put us in a position to win game seven. Garcia starts for the Astros. Max Freed starts for the Braves tonight. Here's Brian Snitker talking about Max Freed. Oh, I think it's great. I mean, I always feel good when Max pitches and uh you know, we're in a good spot right now with Ian and Ian on tap and, and uh, got a lot of confidence in Max and looking forward to watching him go. He talked about how the Braves don't feel pressure. The pressure was getting here. We're in the World Series right now. There's no pressure. I mean, um, like I say, it's pressure in the NLCS when you're trying to get here. We all want to finish this off, but there's no pressure. I mean, we're one of two teams remaining in our sport and there, there's no, you know, that I don't know that these guys have, I've sensed any kind of pressure out of these guys internally. Um, you know, the only the only time I hear about that is in this room. Because in that room in there, I don't ever feel it. Here's Max Freed. Yeah, you know, it's going to be really energetic. You know, their, their fans are going to bring it. It's going to be a really, really exciting game. They're a really good team. They're, they've been here before, and they're they're not going to let up. So you know that you got to bring your A game, and you got to bring it. And, um, you know, I'm ready for the challenge. Taylor, what do you got? 
Buster, a couple of things. So we're about to talk to Tony Gwynn Jr. about Barry Bonds. You can watch that E60 about Barry Bonds on Sunday, November 7th at 9.30 p.m. Eastern time. Also, you can listen to Game 6 of the World Series tonight on ESPN Radio. Tune in at 7 p.m. Eastern for full pregame coverage. Buster, I know you're a big Star Wars fan, so today we are promoting the Book of Boba Fett coming to Disney Plus on December 29th. But starting today, you can watch the trailer for this thrilling Star Wars adventure of the legendary bounty hunter Boba Fett and mercenary Fennec Shan followed the journey as the two navigate the galaxy's underworld to stake their claim on territory once ruled by Jabba the Hutt. That's the book of Boba Fett. Check it out on Disney+. Plus. That's the trailer starting today, and the series premieres on December 29th. And last note, bald men on campus. We are a week away from college basketball. I just finished recording with Seth Greenberg, LaFonso Ellis, Jay Billis. They are hyped for the Champions Classic next week with uh, Michigan State, Duke, Kansas, and Kentucky. I'm not sure who plays who there, but those are the four teams in the mix in Madison Square Garden. They talk about that. They preview the American, Gonzaga, uh, everything we haven't covered uh, as the season quickly approaches. So that's Bald Men on Campus, ESPN's college basketball podcast. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. We're driven by the search for better. When it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Buster. Just go to Indeed.com slash Buster right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Buster. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? Each transaction is a step toward a free 11 ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with Code Baseball. That's Code Baseball. Visit VividSeats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats. Experience it live. Dan Schulman is the play-by-play man for this World Series on ESPN Radio. Dan, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing well, Buster. How are you? I'm a little worn down. Uh, as we get through October into November in a postseason, there's no doubt, <laughs> you, you know, going traveling, laundry, the whole thing, it begins to wear on you a little bit. I feel like a reliever has been called on probably one or two times uh, too many. What? How about you? 
Yeah, no, I, I feel the same. Uh, and this is wonderful. And, and I love it just as much as you do. And you know that. But every day is either uh, a very late night or a travel day. There, there are no just uh, recuperating days. So I, I do feel like a reliever, um, except we go, uh, we automatically go three days in a row. There's no, uh, you know, we got to, <laughs> we got to shut them down for a day. So um, uh, but, it, but it's fantastic, but, uh, you know, we're not in our thirties anymore. We're not in our forties anymore. So, uh, uh, I do crave sleep a little bit more than I used to. And I'm sure you're the same. So the other night after uh, world series game five, I mentioned it to, uh, Chris Singleton on our, uh, post game show that this was beginning to remind me the brave situations beginning to remind me of what happened in 2016, which is the last year that a team came back from a three to one deficit to win the world series. As you know, uh, you know, in that postseason, our friend Terry Francona managed brilliantly with his bullpen. He basically, and I can't remember the exact uh, numbers, but between Corey Kluber and his three prime relievers, Andrew Miller and Cody Allen and Brian Shaw, those four pitchers accounted for something like 50% of the innings, you know, through the middle of that World Series. And by the time you got to game five, you began to see the frang. Uh, and because of all that responsibility and all that action and those relievers were gassed by the end. I kind of wondered about that the other night when I was watching AJ Minter pitch, you know, to AJ's credit after the game he said, no, I'm totally fine. I, I'm I, I just in watching him pitch. He didn't seem like he was the same. And I feel like the Braves are a little bit like that. And Singy rem, uh, remembered how in that series, Francona said to him, we need to finish this as quickly as possible. Because yeah. he recognized what was going on. You yeah. like the comparison between the, you know, the Indians and, and the Braves and where they are now. Yeah, I remember uh, Tito saying that to us in 2016. I, I think the difference is, if memory serves, I, I, I think I remember feeling like probably most people did is that, yeah, the Cubs are, are the better team. And, and not to say the Indians couldn't win the series, but the Cubs... Um, were the better team and that Cleveland had to win it fast if they were going to. But I think the difference here is I don't know that Houston has the starting pitching advantage that I seem to remember the Cubs having in in, right. in, in 2016. I, I mean, if you look at the next two games, it, it's, Mac, it's Max Fried and Ian Anderson going for Atlanta. And by 2021 standards, and I know it hasn't gone great for Freed a couple of times recently, but by 2021 standards, that's pretty good. So, you know, the fraying of the bullpen is interesting. Like like last year with Nick Anderson uh, of the Rays, who had been incredible in the regular season, you know, and then it started to wear, you know, you started to see it in the postseason. But I think sometimes we all say, oh, they've got an off day tomorrow. He'll be fine the day after that. And that's not necessarily the case. And, you know, your point about Minter is interesting. But I think between Minter, Matzik, Jackson, Smith, I think there's enough there. And knowing they have Freed and Anderson, I, I think there's enough there that I wouldn't say, uh, well, because they didn't win it in game five, they've lost the opportunity to win it. I, I still give the Braves the upper hand just being up three games to two. Okay. In this moment, uh, crowd's going to be going crazy tonight. Uh, the Braves needing just one more win to become the World Series champion. The the Astros needing two more wins, but also having had a lot of experience, haven't actually been in a situation like this before. 2017 American League Championship Series, coming back from Yankee Stadium down three to two and then winning game six and seven. Uh, how do you feel like Luis Garcia is matched up for this moment? 
Uh, it's a great question because, you know, he's relatively inexperienced. And, and and I will tell you in the moment, I was very surprised to see Jose Urquidy come into game five. And Dusty obviously trusts and values Urquidy enough that he felt in that moment they needed to get those three outs from Jose Urquidy. Urquidy, had he not pitched in that game, I'm guessing he would have started tonight in, in game six. And then maybe you would have had Garcia in game seven. So I know that they could probably just flip flop them and have Gar and, and have Urquidy start game seven if they get through game six. But I was a little bit surprised to see Urquidy pitch in game five. Um, uh, Garcia is a wild card. He, he really is. His stuff is fantastic when it's on. He's had a terrible start an incredible start and a so-so start so far in the postseason. So I don't know how anybody knows what to expect from him um, in, in game six. Uh, but if, if things don't go well, obviously Dusty's got to have a very quick hook and you're going to see Jake Odorizzi or Christian Javier or, or somebody like that really, really fast in this one. What about Max Fried matched up in this moment? Uh, I didn't think Max Fried pitched that badly in, in his start in game two. That was the game. You remember the infield hit from Siri, that little kind of, you know, push in uh, infield hit towards second base. And there were a couple of other ground balls that got through. I, I know he hasn't been as good as they would like and as good as he was in the second half of the year. But really, the second half of the year, he was about as good as any starting pitcher in baseball. I don't think we could wash that away. Now, again, in a season that's gone from 60 games to 162, I think it's natural to say, well, is he a little bit, you know, fatigued? But sometimes I think that's chicken and egg. I, I think Max Fried is fine. I really do. This Houston lineup is the best lineup in baseball. It was all season. They scored the most runs. They had the lowest strikeout percentage. They have great balance in their lineup. They're a really, really good lineup. So, you know, they can beat you even if you're pitching well. But I, I think Max Fried is fine. I, I don't know if he'll win tonight, but I, I think he's just fine heading into this game. I feel like what I'm going to be watching for early in this game is how he lands his curveball early because I, you know, a couple of times when I've seen him struggle in this postseason, it always feels like it takes him some time to to get that figured out. His pitch count goes up. You know, he'll come out of the, the first three innings with 65 pitches, which for the Braves in this moment is probably too many. Uh, for you, what are you going to watch for with Freed? Yeah, I think he was slider heavy in the first game. I think he kind of trusted his slider the most. I'd have to go back and look, and I will before tonight, but I think he went with a lot of sliders. Um, in game two, what I always look for in a game against Houston is uh, the tone setter that Altuve might be uh, in the first at bat. Um, I would you've heard me say this on the air and off the air. I would never throw him a first pitch fastball. I don't care if you throw it at his ankles or at his nose. I would never, ever, ever throw him a first pitch fastball. Um, so, you know, if, if Altuve hits one into the Crawford boxes or off the scoreboard on the first pitch, I think that's you know, that sets the tone and that gets people going like crazy at, at Minute Maid Park. I think more than if Correa or Alvarez or Bregman or anybody else does something, if Altuve does something, it feels like a real barometer for me. So I'm going to be watching that first pitch at the bottom of the first very closely. So earlier in this series, you had a conversation with Altuve about his tendency to swing at first pitches. And for anybody who's been listening to our broadcast, they know that you and Eduardo Perez have this running bet where Eduardo Perez bets on every plate appearance that he's going to swing at the first pitch. I, I'm, I, Jose is a funny guy because he, I mean, incredibly nice to talk to and engaging. And yet at the same time, and I always heard this from, uh, from AJ Hinch about, he, he was deeply insecure about when his next hit is coming. 
right? <laughs> he could be four for four. And if he makes an out, then he's like, oh boy, I, I need to get a hit. So I'm yeah. curious about what his demeanor was when you brought up this tendency for him to swing at the first pitch, what he told you. I think he was a little wondering because it was the first question I asked him and I just tried to loosen him up and get him to laugh because sometimes that can make the rest of the interview go a little bit better. And and he doesn't really know me. So um, I think he was, I, I think his first instinct was, that's a weird question to ask, but I did it. I mean, you heard it. I did it in a totally tongue in cheek sort of way because the night before he had swung at the first pitch in all, in all four pitches. And I don't think I ever took the bet. I think Eduardo just kind of said I had to give him a dollar if he swung at the first pitch. <laughs> I, I don't think I ever agreed to that, but um, uh, Eduardo lost interest a little bit when I told him I didn't have any $1 bills and I gave him a Canadian loony because that's all I had on me. And I think that's when the whole thing, <laughs> kind of petered out. But I, I I think Altuve, you know, knew I was joking, but whether there was a little bit lost in translation in terms of the tone or something, uh, I'm not sure. But he's been a, he's been a little bit more uh, patient on first pitches uh, since then. I'm not connecting, saying there's any connection, obviously, but I, I think the Atlanta pitchers are pitching him a little bit differently on the first pitch and not giving him as much to swing at um, early on. But it may be just a case of, hey, he, you know, he came up with a hit or two and now he's a little bit less anxious. And he's so talented. Um, you know, he doesn't need to hit a ball at his ankles or at his eyes to, in, in, in order to get going. But I think he feels like, Hey, sometimes if they group one for me, that might be the best one that I get. But, uh, like I said, to me, he's a real tone setter and, uh, whether he hits it over the wall or just whether he gets on base, you know, when he gets on base now, Michael Brantley can do a lot of things. And now with Correa in the three spot, like, um, as Alex Cora said during the ALCS, he likened the Houston offense to a fast break offense in basketball. He said, once they get going, it's, tar- it's hard to stop them. You got to keep them down because once you- they get up off the mat, they're a real problem. And who would, you know, who would know better, obviously, than Alex Cora? So after game four, uh, you and Jess and Eduardo and, and I and others uh, shared a, a drink and we were talking about uh, the potential decision for Dusty Baker about Alex Bregman. And we were debating whether or not uh, Dusty would drop Alex, who struggled so much in this postseason from three to a lower spot in the order. And the natural spot that we all saw was down to the seventh spot because then you can move up the other two uh, right-handed hitters, Correa to three, Guriel to, to five, or you know, vice versa, Guriel to five, Correa to, uh, you know, staying, or to three, and, and Correa staying in the five spot. Either way, we wondered if he would do it. I can't even remember where I landed in the end because I my feeling was you absolutely need to do it. But knowing Dusty and his you know reputation as being a great players manager, not wanting to overreact uh, to every moment, uh, I didn't know if he was going to do it. And in the end, uh, it felt like the Dusty did it in a Dusty kind of way, going right to Alex and explaining himself. Yeah, I mean, Dusty does, you know, he he gets people, right? And he's a player's manager and all that. So I think you and I were similar. We both felt it was the right move to make, but we didn't know if it would come off as a panic move. So was it almost too late to do it? You know, if this had happened right. around earlier, you can do it. Or if the change had been made a game or two earlier in the World Series, but to do it in what conceivably could be your very last game of the season to me is a little bit unusual, but I definitely think it was the right move. You know, the, the interesting part too is part of it had to do with the fact that uh, the games were being played in the National League Park. Uh, and if you'll remember the game where Granke started, he hit eighth. And Granke's probably a better hitter than Martin Maldonado, but either way, Yuli Gurriel got intentionally walked twice in that game. The bat was taken out of Gurriel's hands. And you can't have that. He's too good, right, to have the bat taken out of his hands. 
That is not as much of a factor here in Houston because tonight hitting eighth is going to be Chaz McCormick or Jose Siri. But I still think it was the right move in the moment, and I still think absolutely it has to be the way the lineup works again tonight. Um, I mean, they just scored a bunch of runs. Correa had three hits. Guriel had three hits. You've got to leave Correa three, Guriel five, Bregman seven going into this game. And uh, I think, uh, you know, given how Bregman had been going, when they intentionally walked Bregman in game five, I'm sure on the Astros side, they're like, great. Uh, (laughs) You get get something out of Bregman. He also hit that double, which I thought was, you know, incredibly important in that moment in the second inning the other night, not only for the Astros, but for him. He seemed greatly relieved. I I thought of that, too, uh, because I know, you know, when Alex Rodriguez, for example, was dropped when he was struggling in the 2006 playoffs by Joe Torty, the eighth spot. You know, that was viewed as an insult. I think where Alex Bregman was, it took pressure off. him. Like, yeah. I think he probably was relieved. Yeah, I think so. We've all talked about how that, uh, you know, that swagger that we've all seen from Alex Bregman ever since we first saw him. It, it looks like it's gone. You know, Correa can be struggling as much as Bregman is. And you don't know. You can't see that in his body language. Um, you could see it in Alex Bregman. So I, I think you're right. There was probably a little bit of relief. You know, it's not May where this is, you know, going to then become what the, what it is for the rest of the season and tarnish your, you know, this is in the moment doing what's best for the team that needs to win three games in a row to win the World Series. And, and you know, Bregman said all the right things about it. Dusty said all the right things about it. It was handled the right way. And if you, you know, if you took the names and resumes away and just looked at the numbers, he should be hitting seventh, you know? Yep. Um, I mean, you can make a case that Tucker should be hitting higher. He's been great. He's had some great at-bats here, but they like, obviously, they like spacing out the lefties, two, four, six. But, you know, the way that Alvarez is struggling right now, is there a chance we're going to get to the ballpark tonight and Tucker's four and Alvarez is six, that he flip-flops the lefties? I doubt it, but it's kind of a similar situation to what Bregman was going through. Yep, I think Dusty uh, recognized the the need for production from that spot, and also uh, he uh, acutely aware of his responsibility to everybody in the lineup. Mm-hmm. So, all right, Dan, I will see you at two thirty. Okay, good talking to you, Buster. You can now stream the most MLB games on Directv without a satellite dish. Yes, the clutch hits, the strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems, with nothing on your roof. So whoever's up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, 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 with nothing on your roof. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. For the ones who get it done, Granger offers high quality supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Anthony Glenn played in the big leagues. He is, of course, the son of the late great Hall of Famer Tony Gwynn. Anthony, how you doing? I'm well, Buster. How about yourself? I'm doing well. Uh, thanks for coming on with us. I, as you know, uh, with this uh, documentary that's coming out, done by E60 on Barry Bonds, 
Um, I'm really curious about your memories of him because when I, I covered your dad when I was at the San Diego Union Tribune, uh, you know, I knew your dad always had such respect for him and talked talked about him, um, you know, about a, a talked about, you know, uh, how much respect he had for him. But also those two guys really uh, hit it off, it seemed like, and almost talked the same language because they were such elite players. And, of course, that was the time going around Jack Murphy Stadium as a kid. I'm curious about your first memories of Barry. Oh, man. I, you know, him and my dad were, were so different, but so much alike, especially when it came to hitting. Um, I just think they understood each other uh, on a level that was different than I think anyone else. My first memories of Barry uh, is really of him razzing my dad. And, um, <laughs> and, and it was, and it was always about hitting. It was about him, how he defended. He was one of the left fielders that always came in really shallow and just dared my dad to hit it over his head. And, uh, there were probably more times than not where he was able to snatch line drives in that short left field area than there was when my dad beat him over his head. But when he did, my dad wasn't afraid to let him know about it. But uh, I know from my dad's standpoint, my my dad loved watching Barry Ed. He was one of one of his favorites to watch while he was playing, and you know when when he retired. How was Barry with you? He was good with me, man. I, I remember uh, him giving me a hard time about uh, taking care of my hair at the time when I had it as a youngin. Uh, he, he was on me. He was on me pretty tough, but um, I, I remember getting to the big leagues, you know, as a player and having an opportunity to share a field with him. And um, he, he was always good to me. He, he never, I never had a bad experience with Barry and. Um, yeah, I consider, at least from my standpoint, I consider him the greatest that I ever got a chance to see swing a bat and, and do it on a baseball diamond. So you were talking about how his uh, relationship with your dad was built around, you know, the two of them wrapping each other for some degree. Tell me if this story is true or is it urban legend. I heard a story that your dad, as you know, he'd go out for early batting practice, work with Herb Redmond or, you know, whichever coach was there at the time. And Barry, as the story I heard it, uh, went out on the field when when uh, your dad was taking early batting practice and grabbed the bat out of his hand. And you know better than I do, your dad uh, used one of the smallest bats in the big leagues. And he got into the cage to get hard home runs into the left field stands at the first. One after another. Something like I heard like nine homers and 11 swings and then flipped it away like it was a whipple ball bat. Like, get that thing out of here. Does that sound right? I, I I can't I can't say the de- the details are hundred percent right, but I do remember a time him grabbing one of my hats and going to work. Now, I can't confirm that he hit seven straight in the left field stands, but I mean Barry was that good. It wouldn't surprise me at all if he did do that. So another story I once asked your dad about Barry and what distinguished him as a hitter for a story did for ESPN. And your dad talked about Barry's vision. And he talked about how he thought that Barry saw the ball in the pitcher's hand earlier than any other hitter. Uh, and, and I said, well, describe what you mean. And he said, literally, when the pitcher is bringing his hand yep. past his ear, he know he could see the grip, 
he knows what's in the hand. And then I asked your dad, <laughs> who, as you know, was very competitive. I said, well, Tony, how do you, how do you know that? Does that come out of a conversation with him? <laughs> and, he and, he, and he paused and he said, no, because I see the exact I same thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a fact. And I, I, I can remember many a times my dad and I sit and, Watching a Sunday night game that the Giants are in because they were far on, they were on it far more often than the Padres were, um, and my dad picking apart that, picking apart that very same thing of he's already taking. I, I can remember Barry actually taking off his elbow guard with the ball mid-flight because he already <laughs> knew it was a ball, and. I, and, and I know it to be true. I, and I knew my, I hadn't heard that story, but I knew my father probably said, cause I see it too, because I tell the story all the time. When I first got to my first professional stop in Beloit, Don Money asked my father to come out and, and talk. So he came out and during the conversation with a bunch of A-ballers, he's talking about picking up, you know, the knuckle on the knuckle curve as the pitcher is getting ready to release it. And you know, as the son, I've, I've heard all of this before, and I kind of just put my hand up and I was like, Dad, I don't think anybody in this room sees the baseball that soon. Like, we might see spin, but we certainly aren't able to pick up the knuckle on the knuckle curve from a right-handed pitcher. It just it doesn't happen very often. That's how you know him and Barry, in terms of seeing the baseball and being able to put barrel to it, were in a class of their own. You know, when I was in D60 Basin, I don't know uh, what they're going to use from uh, what the, the questions they asked me. But, you know, when they asked me about distinguish, what distinguished him, I didn't talk about any specific numbers. They didn't talk about the home runs. They didn't talk about the walks. They didn't talk about his left field play, stealing bases. I talked about how the, the knowledge and the acumen behind his takes. Like the fact that he, he was like a chess player. Who knew exactly what your move was going to be? Was going to be as you lowered your hand to the board. That's the way it yeah. felt to me. And, and I mean, and that's uh, that's part of the reason why he was so dangerous as he got older. Because now you start to have a familiarity with your opponent. You know how they like to pitch you. So you're adding that piece to a guy who's already seeing the ball at an elite level. And you know, one of the other things my dad used to talk about is his ability to take the ball that's on the inside corner and keep it fair and keep it fair easily. Whereas most guys who are left-handed get to that pitch, they can't keep it fair. They end up keeping it foul. Almost 10 times out of 10, if Barry got to, got that pitch, he was going to keep it fair. It was just a matter of if, if he hit it well enough for it to get out of the ballpark. How did he do that? I mean, what separated his ability to do that? Was the way that he brought his hand forward? Yes, it was, it was the, you know, this was, a, this was always an interesting dynamic between him and my dad. My dad talked so much about the bottom hand and how he had to take the knob to the ball. Barry talked about catching it with his top hand. And it, it's, it, it virtually is the same thing, just seen and thought differently through, through the individual's eyes, right? there. My dad called it palm up, palm down for Barry. It was for him to catch that ball with his top hand. And he had some of the most electric hands in that baseball has ever seen. And so I think when, you, when it came to why he could keep it fair, you talked about the vision, 
him being able to pinpoint exactly where he needs to get to this baseball and the way that his body just naturally kind of was in a position to do what he wanted to do, which was to catch it with that top hand. Uh, the East will address the question of whether or not he's going to get the Hall of Fame. I, you know, just seeing the voting progression in recent years, I would be shocked if he gets voted in because he's been stuck at that 59 to 61%, and he needs an enormous block of voters to change their perspective uh, on him, just as Roger Clement needs to change their perspective. So I'm, I'm curious, from you now, uh, how do you feel about the question of whether or not Barry should be in the Hall of Fame? I, I've kind of always felt like he should be in the Hall of Fame. My dad was in the same boat. Uh, this is a guy that, I mean, even prior to uh, some of the things that he got involved with later that, you know, he's, he is uh, known for at this point, he was already knocking on that door, if not an already a Hall of Famer. Um, and, and you add into what we know now about that era, I mean, it just doesn't seem right that a guy like him doesn't get in. I mean, he is the greatest baseball player of that generation, in my opinion. Um, and it, it would just be, I, I don't know that you could have a real Hall of Fame without him in it, especially knowing what we know now. It was, it was different when this information all came to light earlier. But as we've started to study and learn more and more about that era, it, it just wouldn't seem right not to have him in. And I've said this before many times. I find it absurd that we're even having this conversation uh, because yeah. I, you know, I think that players have already been voted to the Hall of Fame who use steroids, uh, and I don't like to single out anybody because of the simple fact that I think that any time you talk about one player, you completely take it out of context. You played in the minor leagues, and I think that's always important to bring up that under the umbrella of uh, major, uh, under the, uh, the umbrella of professional baseball, major league, minor leaguers. Uh, even if you extend it to college, I mean, there literally were tens of thousands of players who were probably doing the same. I feel like the only reason why uh, anyone pays attention to, to Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens is they happen to be the best guys. They happen to be the guys with the best numbers. Does that make sense? Uh, 100%. 100%. But, I mean, I, as you said, I, I played in this game. I know there were guys using. I know that it didn't work for, for some of them. That's that is for an awful lot of guys. It didn't work. Uh, it didn't work for in the means that we think of it as, right? I mean, you're right. We think at the time, and, and, and that we're supposed, you know, that we're doing right. So, but they weren't the only one. And you know, I, I, I've I've always felt the same way. As it sounds like he was felt, Buster. This it, it is absurd to believe that. We're going to penalize these guys um, when, you know, those of us who are in it know that they were they were on an even playing field with a lot of people. The guys who weren't were the ones, honestly, who were the only ones playing on a different field. That's exactly right. All right, Anthony. Well, I always appreciate your perspective. Good to talk with you. All right, Buster. Take care. This is the Numbers Game with Sarah Langs. Sarah Langs, reporter and producer for MLB.com. Sarah, uh, we have just uh, spoke with Mr. Gwynn, 
uh, about Barry Bonds. We got this upcoming documentary. What uh, what's your favorite Barry Bonds statistic? I think my favorite statistic is the intentional walk with the bases loaded. Um, so intentional walks were officially tracked in 1955, but there are some others that, you know, researchers have gone back and been able to find even prior to that. The the act of intentionally walking exists. It just wasn't kind of like we talk about RBIs, not on record until a certain point. So at the point when he was intentionally walked with the bases loaded, May 28th, 1998, there had not been one of those since 1944. There was only a handful of guys who have been intentionally walked to the bases load. Only one player since Josh Hamilton in 2008, but Bill Nicholson, 1944, Mel Ott in 1929, Del Bissonette in 1928, Nap Lajway in 1901, and Abner Dalrymple in 1881, which isn't really... I mean, that's a whole other whole other ball game. But, you know, for anyone who doesn't know the situation, bases loaded bottom of the ninth against the Diamondbacks. They intentionally walk in with the bases loaded two out and the next guy lines out. So it worked out. But it's just incredible to be that kind of feared hitter. And, you know, of course, my next thought is, is there anyone in the game right now who that would happen to? And I think the answer is maybe Juan Soto and probably nobody else. But it would, again, have to be the exact correct situation. Yeah, Juan Soto, that's an interesting question. Would someone else be potentially be that person? You're right. That was the first name that popped into my head, too. I wonder if there's going to be a day on Vlad Jr. Yeah. I mean, he, he seems to have such a, a great understanding of hitting. Um, yeah. But, you know, and the fact that he's a right-handed hitter probably means that teams would be more inclined, uh, you know, to pitch to him uh, just in case, you know, in the event you're looking for a ground ball or something like that. But you're right. Juan Soto probably would be that guy. All right, Sarah, let's play the numbers game. Number three. Number three is 12. So entering game six with again a chance to clinch for the Atlanta Braves. Freddie Freeman has played 12 seasons in his career, all with the Atlanta Braves. So I was curious where that might rank for a player to finally win his first title after playing his entire career with one team. So there's four active players that played 10 or more years, all with the single team at the time of their first title. Ryan Zimmerman with the Nationals at 15, Clayton Kershaw with the Dodgers at 13, Kenley Jansen also with the Dodgers at 11, and Steven Strasburg with the Nats at 10. So Freddie Freeman would be third on that list if the Braves can win, whether it's tonight or tomorrow um, at any point. And again, that's just active players. The overall record is 18, uh, but pretty cool and really fun company, I think, amongst active players if you were to join that list. Number two. Number two is 50. So we've talked about this a couple of times during the postseason, but I thought it was worth updating again because you and I were talking uh, before game five about how the Astros hadn't really been uh, coming through with two outs in quite the same way that they had been earlier in the postseason. So entering game five, they'd scored 46 runs with two outs this postseason, which was tied for second most. Now they're up to 50, which is second most in a single postseason. So they had four of those in the game on uh, on Sunday. <laughs> um, and that's second only to the 2020 Dodgers, who had 59. Of course, they had an extra round. They got those extra two games, so that helps there. Number one. Number one is three. So we have Luis Garcia, a rookie, 
going on three days rest in game six here with his team's back up against the wall and everything else. The last rookie to make a World Series start on three days rest. And we're taking openers and bullpen games out of this and expecting that he isn't going to be one of those, but that this is an attempt at a normal start. So the last pitcher to do this in a normal pre-2020s kind of situation was John Lackey in game seven in 2002 against Dusty Baker's Giants. And of course, Lackey beat the Giants for one. He allowed one run in five innings. And it is incredible how many times the 2002 World Series has come up with, again, Dusty being on the other side of a lot of these notes now. So you have to think that's sort of some good energy for Dusty Baker and the Astros heading into game six that now he's the team starting the rookie on three days rest. And last time this happened in the World Series, it did work out for that team. All right. I'm going to throw something at you. Be completely unfair because uh, I gave you no time to prepare for this. I just want your gut instinct because there's obviously going to be a lot of conversations this winter about the opener strategy. As I've talked about in the podcast, there are going to be adjustments to rules, I'm sure. But I was thinking about this and watching the uh, the Astros put up nine runs the other day. And obviously, uh, you know, the Braves in their perfect world, they would have preferred that Charlie Morton make the start rather than Tucker Davidson. But generally speaking, as you see more and more and more teams use the opener strategy, has it really improved pitching that much in the postseason? Because I don't think it has. <laughs> I don't I don't think so. I mean, I, I still feel that for the most part, when we see these things, it's out of necessity. I mean, yeah. I think that the Tampa Bay Rays are obviously in a slightly different boat because they really intend to do this. And you could say maybe even a team like the Brewers and the A's have been teams that have really tried intentionally to do this during the regular season. So if we see that in the postseason, it's a little bit different. And at this point in the game and the way pitching has gone, every team has bullpen game opener, whatever you want to say at some point over the course of the 162. But I think what you said of them wanting Charlie Morton on best case scenario really gets to it. I mean, you know, the proliferation of all of this to me is really based on absolute necessity. And, you know, the fact that we are at 162 game season after a 60 game season last year, you know, guys like Ian Anderson even are, you know, rookie with 30 career starts. You have to be uh, careful with him. Uh, this separate conversation that wasn't an opener, but when he got removed, I, I just think that a lot of that is sort of what's leading to this. So I am curious, obviously, if there are rule changes, that would be a drastic change. But I my sort of instinct or uh, thought is that it will sort of get back to what we've been used to seeing um, in some way next year and moving forward, just as things sort of level out after that 2020 to 2021 big change. Yeah. And they're going to do some, some gradual implementation. I think of this, this is not going to be overnight. We want to get back starters throwing seven innings because you know, organizations haven't prepared their pitchers in that way. Um, they don't have a wealth of guys down the minor leagues who are throwing six and seven innings. And so by limiting the number of pitchers on each roster, which I think will happen next year to 13 and then gradually down to 12, um, and they attach the, the starting pitcher to the designated hitter. And I believe that's going to happen as well, but double hook as it's mm -hmm. referred to, then, um, I think over time, well, you're right. We're going to get back to the preeminence of the starting pitcher being restored. All right, Sarah, thank you. Thanks so much for having me, Buster. Enjoy the game. Bleacher Tweets.
Alrighty, Buster. Bleacher tweets for a Tuesday. Just one for today. Jesse Pruitt at Jesse underscore Pruitt writes in. Hey, Buster. Braves fan here. How is your son doing with the series going back to Houston? And with the Derrick Henry news, is Jake devastated? Is he in a catatonic state at the moment? Yeah, Monday was not a good day for my son uh, (laughs) because, you know, he's worried about the Braves and he's like a lot of baseball fans. I know a lot of sports fans. I know he's incredibly loyal, uh, but he is also a glass half empty fan Mm. in that he's preparing himself for disaster. Okay, he's uh, already preparing for the possibility that Braves lose this World Series because he texted me after they lost game five. and said, "Okay, that's it. You know, that's the beginning of the Astros comeback. Uh, the Derrick Henry news hit him on two fronts. He's a huge Titans fan, and he also has Derrick Henry on his fantasy team. No. He's really bummed about that. And I, as a Vikings fan, love the irony that the Titans are now reaching out to Adrian Peterson, <laughs> all-time Viking great, to fill their hole in their backfield. Now, I had some fun with that yesterday in conversations with Jake. Oh, that's funny. All right. Well, they just got to they got to win one and two. I know it seems daunting at the moment. They should have taken game five, but just just win one of these next two and and you're the champion. So uh, send Jake my regards. Hashtag Bleacher tweets on Twitter as you're watching game six, everyone. And please follow, rate and review this podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. That's it for today. My thanks to Dan, Sarah, Anthony and Taylor. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And remember, hate and inequality based on skin color is something that we need to fight against every single day. Thanks for listening to the Baseball Tonight podcast. If you're playing fantasy baseball, check out the Fantasy Focus podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. The Baseball Tonight podcast. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms or restrictions apply.